We are back with the Hubscale podcast, where we dive into the minds of security leaders all around the world. This week's awesome guest is Snehal Antani, who is the co-founder and CEO of Horizon Free. Snehal, it's great to have you on. Likewise, thank you. No problem at all. So for everybody listening, it'd be awesome for you to give a quick introduction to yourself. Yeah, so um, my name is Snehal Antani. I am the co-founder CEO here at Horizon Free. My background, I started off my career as a software engineer at IBM and then was a, a CIO within GE Capital and then moved to the Bay Area to become the CTO at Splunk uh, and helped to, to grow and scale that company in a bunch of interesting ways. And then took a break from industry altogether and decided to serve within special operations. So I spent about four years uh, serving within the Department of Defense. Just this amazing experience, probably the hardest, most meaningful work of my career. And that's where I met my co-founder, Tony. And uh, the challenge that both Tony and I had, and I've had in all of my jobs thus far is, we had no idea we were secure until the bad guys showed up. And by then it's too late. So how do we proactively verify our security posture? And that really became the start of a journey that led to starting Horizon 3. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's fantastic, and I've been following and watching some podcasts uh, about Horizon Free and your journey, which uh, which is pretty awesome to, and I can't wait to unpack a lot of this today. Um, so I guess just talking about Horizon Free a little bit more, then. So take me back to the start um, of that journey. Yeah, sure. So I'll actually go back to my time at DoD and then my time at GE Capital. So when I would get this asked this question by my leadership, are we secure? And for a CIO, that's a terrible question to be asked because your answer is, I don't know. And I have to wait for a breach to make sure that I'm logging the right data or that we fixed the right vulnerabilities or that my team actually knows how to detect and respond to a breach and that my various security tools are actually secured or configured correctly and, and working well. And so you don't want to say, I don't know. The answer is, here's how we're going to go verify. And the approach to verifying was, paying for pen testers or red teamers to come in once or twice a year, combined with using vulnerability scanners and all these other tools, but none of them uh, looked at your environment through the eyes of the attacker at scale. They were either simulations or were run books that you had to script. What I wanted to do was look at my environment through the eyes of the attacker and use offense to inform my defensive priorities and initiatives. And what I found was that in order to do this, I really needed to democratize pen testing because up until that point, and even now, there are less than 5,000 certified ethical hackers within the United States, less than 5,000. It takes 10 years of experience to become a senior pen tester. It is a very hard profession that requires very exquisite expertise. You've gotta be an expert in networking, an expert in configuring a variety of systems, an expert in reverse engineering. I mean, there's a lot of skills you've got to go off and build to be really good at it. And then because it's labor intensive, if you've got a large environment with 50,000 or 100,000 or more hosts, and that environment is constantly changing, you need to be testing your environment uh, very frequently. A couple of, uh, we have some customers running pen tests 20, 30 times a week, uh, multiple times a day. It's wired into their DevOps process. So this frequency of change should have a corresponding frequency of testing increase. Yeah, no, for sure. And I, I was watching one of your podcasts before, and you was we was talking, you was talking about the the kind of the the missing art in terms of the pen testing world. Because even in Germany, on one of your podcasts, you mentioned that there's only sixty pen testers in the entire Germany. <laughs> so it's crazy, it's crazy as well. So 
Awesome products, awesome situation. Obviously, you've been doing a lot of research about it as well. But tell me more about the products itself. Yeah, so um, what, what we tried to do was design the ability for an IT admin, a network engineer, somebody with no pen testing experience to, in a few clicks, run an infrastructure pen test and be able to do that as often as possible and also wire APIs to um, trigger pen tests and look at the reports and results as well. And so this whole idea, and we actually have one of our sales reps, um, his son, who's nine years old, Daniel, we actually have a video of Daniel doing a demo with the product and it's three clicks and Daniel initiates a pen test against Horizon 3. Now, when you look at how attackers compromise environments, they aren't exploiting zero days like you see in the movies. Often they're finding a credential from one place and combining that with a misconfiguration or a dangerous product default in another to find a way to become domain admin or find a way to steal or gain access to sensitive data. And so what you're doing as an attacker is you're chaining together credentials, misconfigurations, dangerous product defaults, and maybe exploitable vulnerabilities. And it's this chain, this a path that, um, that is what we really need to be focused on as security testers. And so what Node Zero, our product is able to do is it starts on a single machine. It acts like an unauthenticated member of the network. So there's no cheating. There's no scripting ahead of time. And it will execute recon and enumeration to discover the environment. As it discovers the environment, it'll then execute next best action type algorithms to find ways to harvest credentials and then find ways to chain those credentials into these attack paths. And what's interesting is uh, Node Zero is actually doing the exploitation, but it does so in a way that's safe for production. And so now you're not looking at theoretical problems in your environment. You actually have, here is the kill chain or the attack path that Node Zero took. Here is the proof of exploitation for every step along that path, including the commands that were run. So you can rerun the commands if you want. And here's why it matters. And so now you can fiercely prioritize what to fix and make sure that you're you're fixing problems that are truly important to your environment. Yeah, and um, I've I've heard you talk a lot about the the kind of the relationship between the human and the machines as well. So tell me more about your, that kind of situation as well. Yeah, so when you think about security testing, uh, split that into two layers. You've got your application pen testing layer. And the thing is, humans are very gifted at looking and understanding at logic flaws within code and finding ways to compromise an application. So a lot of the application level testing, I think is very human centric, but infrastructure pen testing is a different beast altogether. That's much more a graph analytics problem, especially when you're doing infrastructure pen testing at scale. And so machines are better suited at executing infrastructure pen tests, especially in larger dynamic environments. But you know, humans still have this unique gift. So what you want to do is free up your precious humans, those that are very exquisitely trained to focus on the really hard edge cases and go very deeply into specific areas of interest and then let um, the machines do the execution at scale so you can proactively and continuously find um, the, the issues that are exploitable within a large, messy environment. Yeah, no, for sure. It sounds um, it sounds very exciting. And the, the journey that you've been on as well, I can't wait to unpack a little bit more about kind of the starting of Horizon 3. I know you mentioned that you kind of came with the idea when you was in DOD, but tell me about that initial phase of starting the business. 
Yeah. So, you know, I, it's funny. This is an idea I've been thinking about for a long time, mm -hmm. uh, for almost a decade. And the thing about startups is to be honest with you, when you start a company, the initial idea doesn't really matter. What matters is finding the right team. And I was very lucky as I uh, did my uh, role in DOD, I came across uh, this group of folks within special operations that were probably the best network engineers in the world, the best defensive cybersecurity professionals in the world, the best offensive security professionals in the world. They're the best at what they do, but they'll never think that and, they'll, and no one will ever know. And that's just the nature of how those folks were selected, assessed, trained, and then their operational tempo and just who they are as, as talented individuals. And so I was able to find this early team that had served in the same unit together within special operations. They had been through thick and thin together. They already had a significant level of trust amongst each other. And we had uh, augmented that small group with the right industry experts that knew how to build, ship, and, and uh, scale code within a professional software, uh, software development environment. So that early team is what's the most important as you start a company. And the idea, you'll always, you're, you're usually going to iterate on the idea anyways. So if you can find the right team first as an, as an early founder, that's what's more important. Yeah, no, it is. And it's, um, even obviously myself being in recruitment, finding the right talent, finding the right people in an organization is literally number one for any business to scale. But that founding team has to be, I saw a photo you posted on LinkedIn about the founding team you had. Uh, it's just awesome, awesome going back. So I guess now, again, you've achieved huge scale over the past few years as well. Um, I will, again, reading back up on it, and you mentioned that five times year on year growth over the past, uh, since starting the business. So how do you achieve that? Now you've got your founding team, absolute amazing dream team, you would say. So how do you then go and execute and scale? Yeah, it's, um, it's a great question. So early on, the role of a CEO, so when you think about uh, what I find to be a pattern for successful early teams, is you've got a person that's basically the hustler, right? So in this role, I was that hustler whose job was to tell the stories to anyone and everyone that would listen, find prospects, pitch the idea, get feedback on the idea, and provide that as feedback into how we wanted to design the product. So I was constantly outward facing as like my primary job. And then my second job as CEO or at the early time of the company was to fiercely protect the time of the engineers so they could focus on shipping code. So that meant making sure all the HR stuff was done, the finance stuff was on, taking out the trash, their, their machines were working. Your job is to protect your engineering capacity at all costs at the early stage. Now what we get to is um, a pretty decent demo, like a good prototype. And so we took the prototype and we made an animated GIF and put it on my cell phone. So now we're at RSA in February. This is three months after we ran our first payroll. And I can do a demo right there on my phone without having to lug around uh, my laptop or have Wi-Fi or anything like that. And I just pitched maybe a thousand times over the course of three days to anyone that would listen. Here's what we're doing. Here's how it works. What do you think? And so early on, it's just getting the stories you want to tell down packed. And more importantly, it's listening for the challenge questions that people are going to have early so that you can incorporate those challenge questions into your pitch and into the product itself. So really, the first six months was all about preserving engineering capacity, pitching to validate the idea and the story, and to inventory all the challenge questions that you knew you would have to deal with eventually.
So I'll pause here and I'll tell you about kind of the next phase as we launched and so on. But does that align with your experiences? Yeah, no, for sure it does. It sure it does. And the uh, the hustler mentality about pitching to anyone and everybody, getting that feedback loop constantly working, I think that's that's literally critical at the start. I, I had a podcast with another gentleman. He's in that phase at the moment. So he's only 12 people, um, great company called Uno.ai. And he's going through that exact phase right now. The the building the product, it's like selling a t-shirt with no arms. Um, so <laughs> it's all of that, that process, but that's awesome. Yeah, and then... What's interesting is as we got to a point where we were pretty, pretty good at, uh, we got the initial version of the product to a pretty good state and we had not yet had paying customers. This is about eight months after payroll, but we were ready to launch, but we had um, a lot of early adopter beta type customers, friends of the company, people from my network, people that I had pitched to that wanted to stay in touch and wanted to, to get early access. So around the end of September, middle of September, which was our goal to ship to, to, to launch the product and start selling, you know, the team is gun shy that none of them had ever launched a product like this from start to finish before. And it got to the point where every day was a new excuse for why we weren't going to ship. And it was just, just fear. And finally, like, you know what? I just posted on LinkedIn. Hey guys, products ready to go. Here's a link to check it out. Let me know what you think. And the amount of panic and then the ensuing calm of like, yeah, it's out there now. Let people go off and, and try it out. So launch day was literally everyone hesitating to pull the trigger and then just blasting it out on LinkedIn and watching hundreds of people and then thousands of people start logging in and poking around, uh, you know, in the first week or two as we launched the product. It was really cool. <laughs> yeah, it sounds really cool. I think now everybody has that fear, don't they, when they start a business? Is it right? Is it ready? And all the situations, it can never be almost, everybody wants it perfect, but it can never be perfect. So I love that. I really do. And I think that, what about the next phase then? So you've gone through that journey. You, you've obviously started obviously bringing on them early, early doors customers, but how do you then take that business into the business you've got today? Yeah. So after we launched, we had a pretty important set of decisions to make. And we understood those decisions by making some experiments. The first decision was, can pen testing be sold in a self-service product-led growth motion? Think of buying Zoom. You didn't talk to a sales rep when you bought Zoom. You just went to the website, signed up, gave your credit card and bought it. And that's how Zoom is able to scale. And as you need more seats, you buy more, you buy more license. Well, is that type of product purchasing experience appropriate in pen testing or not? That was one question, because if it is, then we're going to integrate all of the purchasing experience directly into the product. And we don't need to hire salespeople uh, to the same degree as you would otherwise. Or is this going to feel more like Splunk or Palantir, where it is a heavy handed sales motion that requires a sales rep and a sales engineer to go off and do their demos. And if that's the case, then our entire hiring profile is going to look very different. Or is it somewhere in between? Uh, where, where we've got a really easy product experience and we can then use humans to sell it very quickly and we use partners. So it was unclear to us which path to take. So we tried the self-service route, but what we found is because most of our users were IT admins and network engineers that had never run pen tests before and they were freaking out, honestly, of like, it's almost like you've never fired a gun, you're really scared to pull that trigger. And so they would look at it and they poke around at it. They kind of nudge it, but they wouldn't, they would not actually use it. So we said, you know, what we have is a last mile of trust problem here in pen testing. And at the same time, the pandemic hit 
So I said, we're not going to build that last mile of trust ourselves to our own sales reps. And we're not going to build that last mile of trust through documentation, the product partners, especially regional partners are going to play a critical role in the last mile of trust required to use the product. So we oriented the entire go to market motion around enabling partners to be an extension of the company and being very partner friendly and enabling these partners to build viable businesses with us and on top of us. And that became the focus of the go-to-market. Yeah. I watched your uh, interview on the Cube when he was re releasing the uh, the go-to-market thing with, with the channels and things like that as well. So I think that e the channel ecosystem within security and tech is literally critical as well, especially if you're wanting to scale. So how did you find them early uh, partners then? And which ones did you go after? Yeah. Um, so what we focused on were regional partners, mm -hmm. honestly. See, the really big national partners, uh, the Optives and others are in GuidePoints, they're amazing at what they do. But for an early stage company, they tend to be too big. And the early stage company is too small. And so when you've got a sales rep at these big partners, they're looking for a product that's gonna tear down a million or $2 million of their quota. And that's just not what an early stage company at that stage is gonna be able to bring to the table. So what we focused on were regional partners that 10 to 100 person MSSP, uh, pen test consulting shop, regional reseller. These are the folks where, where um, our size company and our ability to move quickly was an advantage, as well as our desire to truly work with them. Because see, these smaller regional partners were usually disc uh, discarded and disregarded by the really large security vendors. And so you have this underserved partner population eager to find great solutions with decades of trust built amongst their customers. So that's who we targeted early. And it, it worked out with tremendous success because early on, we had six week sales cycles, six to eight week sales cycles with our product. And that's in part because the partner fell in love with the product. They basically had Horizon 3 tattoos and because they were vouching for us and the product was easy to use and it worked, that combination got us to an incredibly fast sales cycle for a cybersecurity product. Yeah. And I think that that's the, the critical part, isn't it? It's finding the actual go-to-market strategy and then going to execute because I know a lot of businesses who have started off and they play around with different areas and it doesn't work for some time. Then they have to go and kind of pivot into a new area. So it sounds like you've, uh, yeah, you kind of hit a home run with that one, didn't you? Yeah. And it's really important to understand what motion is going to work for you prior to bringing in, honestly, a sales leader. So back to my co-founder, Tony, uh, who is really a passionate engineer and loves to ship code. And then me being the hustler that's able to gift wrap that into the ability to, to build a go-to-market motion. Had we gone down the product-led growth route, the Zoom type purchasing experience, the type of, of head of sales or chief revenue officer I would have hired would have come from a Slack or a Zoom or that style company that knows how to build product-led growth motions. If we went down that Palantir Splunk route of winning deals one steak dinner at a time, I would have hired a very different type of sales leader. But because we realized partners was going to play a critical role, we reached out through the network to find the best sales leader that operate, that has the trust of partners. And Bob Caridi, who's our chief revenue officer, he built this channel seeding partner-based sales motion at Sentinel-1. And so 
you know, you've got security experience, you've got channel experience, and that really helped us to select the right head of sales for us at the time. And the reason why that's important is I think a classic mistake startups make is they hire their head of sales before they've got a clear understanding of the motion that's going to work. And if I hired a product-led growth person and try to take that, that uh, square and fit it into a round hole, that's not going to work. And so you really need to understand your go-to-market motion and what's generally going to work in order to select the right head of sales to get after that motion and, and scale it as best they can. Yeah, I think that's that's critical advice because I've gone through very recently, actually, some kind of consulting conversations with some really early stage companies looking to get into the US the first time. And they're still figuring that part out. One of them is an SMB business, but they don't know whether to do that product. Led. But So it's all crazy. You know, I think it's awesome, awesome advice as well. And something I'll take, I'll take away from that as well and uh, dive into my clients with. So I guess, um, I guess just moving on to, to the next part. And as businesses grow, and innovation can stop. But I guess obviously with, with the growth that you have seen over the years and, and, and what you're planning to do in the future, how will you continue to drive innovation within Horizon 3? Um, it's a good question. So let me, when you think about innovation, it's, I, I look at um, engineering velocity as a really important metric. How long does it take to take an idea from whiteboard to pilot to rollout? And the, the, the challenge you have as you scale a company is as you hire more people, in our case, at the end of 2021, we had 26 employees. At the end of 2022, a year later, we had like 115 or 120. So we grew headcount 5X, four to 5X year over year. When you're hiring that many people that quickly, you have to uh, integrate them. They have to have a sense of belonging. You've got to ramp them. Uh, if they've worked in startups before, then great. They're able to handle the chaos of scaling that quickly. If they've never worked at startups before, it looks like chaos. And so honestly, in that stage of hyper growth, when you're growing headcount 5X and you're growing revenue 5X, there's a lot of chaos. And what stifles innovation, not just engineering innovation, but go-to-market innovation and so on, is just dealing with the people and the people issues that come with hiring that quickly. That's, uh, that's a really big, uh, big lesson for me. When I think about some of the mistakes that we made in that period of time, we hired too quickly. We made bets on people and some of those bets really paid off. Meaning like if you've never, if, if you've got the raw skills to do a job, but you've not done that job before, I'm going to make a bet that, Hey, you've got the talent and the potential. I'm going to bet on you to get there. And a lot of those bets paid off and we have just amazing folks. My head of revenue operations is a retired CW5 army Intel officer who had never done anything related to revenue operations before. But if you are a highly successful intelligence officer in the military, you are a learn it all that can solve any problem under pressure as a team. And you can lead in chaos and you can structure and frame complex problems. And with no experience, but the raw talent, he's become an amazing RevOps leader for us. So I made a bet, but there's also a lot of people and you're hiring that quickly when you make bets that just don't pan out. And so I think a really big uh, impact or Im impedance to innovation, especially at that scale are the people issues. Do you have clear roles and responsibilities? Can your processes actually scale? Are you stifling conversation? Or are you enabling conversation? 
And probably one of the most toxic phrases that you could hear at a startup is, stay in your lane or not my monkey is another expression of that. Because at a startup, every problem is in everyone's lanes. We're all one integrated team, right? There is no lane. You, you do the job and you work together across functions to get it done. So I think that's the big uh, limiting factor to innovation at that stage. And I'll talk about you know, what we did as we grew out of that phase and stabilized, but hopefully that aligns with some of your experiences. Yeah, it does. It really does. And I think um, I just finished reading the Zero to IPO by Okta's co-founder. He was talking a similar thing. Um, if you get to that stage of innovation and people are genuinely staying within the lane and scared to step out, then that is a real problem later down the line because nobody will ever try anything. <laughs> so no, I like, I like that factor of it. And then talk about the next phase then. How do you continue to innovate as you grow? Yeah, so the big thing, it, so I, I grew up as a Java developer. And so the, you, know, the, the, you have this idea of garbage collection where as a program's initiating, you've got all sorts of, of objects being created and then you're gonna take the time to go clean all of that stuff and dramatically simplify the objects and, and memory and heap and not to, not to geek out. But as you go through this massive amount of, of headcount growth, you deal with issues like, you know, how should you segment your sales team? In our case, we, we probably segmented too early and we made sales too complicated early on. Uh, how do we create clear roles and responsibilities for engineering? How, do, how does a lead go from uh, marketing through qualification, through deal close, through success? And so as we learned all of these points of friction in 2022, 2023 became a laser focused on simplification. Simplify the engineering processes, simplify the sales territories, simplify our demand generation motion. Because now what we've done is we've looked at the people we've got, we've uh, done uh, performance management for those that really weren't the right fit for start great talent, just not the right fit for the company or the startup world and simplify. And as you simplify your execution, you have fewer moving parts, less to uh, deal with, less griping, more focus. And so 2023 has really been focused on execution. So I described to the team in 22, we stumbled our way into 5X growth <laughs> because we grew headcount like crazy and we grew revenue and we had amazing product retention metrics and so on. Now that we've dramatically simplified, we can actually execute our way consistently to 5X growth and beyond going forward. Yeah, I think it's awesome. And I, uh, I was watching, again, one of your podcasts, you mentioned laziness drives innovation. Um, so I just want to touch on that. What do you mean by that as well? So you know, <laughs> uh, lazy, yeah, laziness uh, inspires innovation. And uh, it's a good question. <laughs> when, I think about, when I think about all the great ideas I had, it's because I didn't want to do something. I'm like, what is the easiest path to getting the job done and not having to put in any effort? Mm -hmm. um, I would imagine that's how the Roomba got started as a, as a consumer product, right? Like just some person just tired of getting up and vacuuming. They just want to hit a button and they innovated and come up with a new product. And so I think that um, it's, 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 while laziness is the funny way to describe it, I think scarcity of resources creates focus and the conditions to innovate because you don't have enough resources. And so you've got to be very careful in how you're spending those limited resources. And as a result, you're gonna make sure every ounce of energy you spend 
is being spent on something creating a competitive advantage for you. And this is why we see in just classic, uh, every, every startup or even in the, in, the, in the DoD world, why small units that were starving of resources tended to fight way above their weight is because that scarcity drove focus and innovation. And I think that's what makes startups so dangerous and disruptive to larger companies. Because in a startup, every single line of code you write better be creating a competitive advantage for you, which allows you to have this laser focus on value creation. I worked at large companies and that focus on value creation dissipates very quickly as you get larger and as you get more comfortable in, your, in the, the payroll situation, whatever else that large company affords you as a team. And so I think that's really what it comes down to. Yeah, laziness, but it's more scarcity of resources drives focus and innovation. Yeah, I love it. I really do. And I think it's uh, some of the best ideas in the world are just basically convenience. And it's just, uh, yeah, it's just fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. Um, so I kind of want to, I want to take it into another, another segment here. So obviously with this been crazy stuff happening recently with SVB and things like that. So I really wanted to dig deeper with you. How do you deal with unexpected events as the CEO of a company? That's a great question. Whether it's a a breach, like so, I mean, we're we're a company where every every company is susceptible to uh, to being hacked. Whether it's a breach, uh, it's some sort of massive PR issue. It's um, your bank failing on you. These crises are things that you cannot really uh, plan in its in its entirety for. But what you can do is prepare for it. What you want to do is train for a crisis ahead of time and build that muscle memory for crisis ahead of time. And it's probably one of the biggest lessons I took away in my, in my, uh, uh, as, my, as I did my role within the Department of Defense. And there was a commander that said to me, we don't train with rubber bullets because everyone would act like a Medal of Honor hero uh, or winner. We train with live rounds so that people have the emotions, the panic, the fear, and so on that they're gonna feel in the real environment. And as a result, they're building this muscle memory for crisis ahead of time. So when they hit the real thing, they're ready to go. We see the same thing in uh, disaster recovery or in cyber attacks. Teams that are running disaster recovery exercises every month or every quarter are ready to execute flawlessly when the real thing actually happens. Those that prepare uh, and, and train for responding to a cyber incident over and over again, have built the muscle memory so that when the real thing happens, they're ready to go. Now, when a startup, you don't, you don't necessarily have that experience. I was very lucky in that a third of my company, a third of my people came from the special operations community. They came from an environment where they trained like they fought and they were experts in dealing with uncertainty and crisis. And they are cool, calm, collected. And as we went through the SVB crisis, as an example, there was no panic. We all took a step back. We understood the situation. We built decision frameworks to figure out what are we gonna do if this happens, if that happens. Uh, teams self-organized to go off and execute. For, for instance, once uh, California took over SVB, the belief was that any receivables, if any customer paid us to that SVB account, that money would be lost. It would have gone into the general pool and would have been dividended out to all of the account holders, not just us. That was something uh, one of the other members of the team identified. And without any hesitation, they spun up a line of effort 
to go notify and update the payment details for every one of our customers. And see, when you've got the right team around you, you don't have to direct that from above. We're all seeing around corners for each other and acting because we've been empowered to act and we've built that muscle memory for crisis response. I think that is the difference between a wartime executive team and a peacetime executive team. Love it. Peter Thiel. Um, that's, a, that's a great book as well. But that is uh, awesome. No, it genuinely is. Because if you have people who kind of act um, on a crisis and doesn't, don't necessarily have to even, even have to come to you to make the decision, I think it's so important about the culture you've been creating. And um, just kind of switching it back to that culture part, because that part was really interesting to me. How can you scale that culture? Obviously, you hire great people. Um, but if you're growing four or five times a year, how do you, how do you scale culture as well? Yeah, you know, another area of, of lessons that we learned. So when we were 26 people, the culture was well-defined and easy to see and easy, honestly, to, to enforce, right, to some degree, because there's only 26 people. When you're at 126 people, most of whom are new, it's very different. They don't have the origin stories of everyone. They don't understand how we got here. They don't understand the backgrounds of the individuals. And also what's made worse is we were a 100% remote company. Hmm. And so you're interacting with people on Slack and you're not building that face-to-face -face relationship. And at the time it was, I didn't know how to preserve the culture or let the culture evolve in an appropriate way. Because what was happening was we had various Slack tribes, right? Groups of people that kind of knew each other before they joined, because we did a lot of referral-based hiring. And so how do we break down the Slack tribes? How do we, what we saw in our surveys was, uh, people loved their managers, but thought poorly of their other teams. So we had great kind of siloed cultures, but uh, not very great cross-functional um, views of each other. And so as we went through in the second half of the year, uh, we really started to think through, well, who, who's responsible for defining and enforcing the culture? And to be honest, it, it shouldn't be the CEO or the executive team. I, so I, I took the decision, this is something I, I observed in the special operations community, that the plank holders, the employees three through 15, that first tranche of folks, they're the ones that have the most skin in the game. They're the ones that have the most to lose. And they're the ones that defined the early culture as they came in. And we've got to put the burden back on them. And we've got to treat them differently and elevate them differently in the company so that people understand, hey, this person's been here. They're coming from a, a place of wisdom and a place of pure intent because they've got the most to lose, right? They're not in it for the, for the title or for the glory or for whatever else. Like they built this company with their blood, sweat and tears from the ground up. And that's one of the things that we've taken. The other thing we did too, though, was we started to execute, I, I don't like calling them hackathons, but more jam sessions, which is, um, if you want to go work on a problem as a cross-functional team, go travel to a single location, work out of that conference room and hotel for two or three days, have dinner together, socialize together, solve that problem over that period of time, and then go back and work, work at your homes now. The alternative was to force people to come to an office, but what we found was these highly focused, co-located jam sessions helped to build trust and bridges across functions in a very meaningful way. And so we've continued to double down on this idea of we're a remote company, but we force face-to-face -face collaboration between key functions regularly. 
Yeah, I love I love that idea. I've not actually heard about that from because uh, the remote work is the what well, was the biggest topic of last year, definitely. <laughs> and um, that's a great that's a great option. Even I'm, I'm building a remote company. We're only we're only four people at the moment, but people in Manchester, people in the UK, trying to get everybody to RSA, for example, and just get everybody in and around the same space because you do miss that as well, don't you? So no, I, I I love I love that kind of situation there. So. I guess diving into one of the the craziest topics is the future of security. Now, nobody knows what's going to happen, but everybody can kind of uh, guess in some way. There's a lot of new and early upcoming technologies, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on what the future of security looks like. Yeah. So when we first ran our product Node Zero, we said this is algorithmic offensive cyber, right? There's no humans involved as Node Zero attacks a network. Mm -hmm. It took us, it took Node Zero seven minutes and 19 seconds to fully compromise a bank. Seven minutes and 19 seconds. No pre-scripting, no humans involved, dropped in with knowing nothing about the environment and became domain administrator. And when you become domain admin, you've got the keys to the kingdom and you can do anything you want. Seven minutes, 19 seconds. That bank had every Gucci security tool you could buy the best EDR, the best SIM, the best whatever. Uh, yet they did not detect the attack. They did not stop the attack. And the question is twofold. One is we don't have a tools problem in cybersecurity. We have an effectiveness problem. And so we have to invest in improving the effectiveness of our, of our detection and response capabilities, which is a people problem, a technology problem, and a process problem. The second thing though is if it took us seven minutes, then that was 2021. The fastest I think we've done it is less than 60 seconds now. There is no way a human is going to be able to detect the alert, characterize the risk of that alert, and then get approval to take action to stop the attack in 60 seconds or less. So the human defender is now the bottleneck in algorithmic cyber warfare. And I believe that the future of cyber will be algorithms fighting algorithms, offensive algorithms, fighting defensive algorithms with humans by exception. And what we're going to see is a thousand X increase in decision-making power on the, by the, by the bad guys, while the defenders slowly catch up. And so I think that the situation is going to get worse before it gets better, but we've seen throughout military history, the fighting force that can make better decisions faster wins. And so in this case, algorithmic attack is, we've already seen indicators that it's been weaponized just through ransomware, the speed at which ransomware and the consistency in which ransomware executes. So we should expect the, that the, the bad guys will adopt algorithmic attack far faster than the good guys can improve their effectiveness. And that's where I think the next five years are gonna go until we reach a point where it truly is uh, cyber attacks operating at machine speed, machines fighting machines with humans by exception. Yeah, and that's that's the thing as well, isn't it? Where the security world is kind of always catching up to the bad guys. They always one step ahead. Innovation is ex exponential with the the bad guys as well. So now it's it's definitely interesting, isn't it? The whole the whole security landscape is going to be interesting. I mean, I, I did uh, some work with. Um, a company called uh, Web in the API security space. The CTO was on our podcast, and we was talking about APIs and and the fact that the basically the entire internet runs off these now. So, but there's no protection for them. So it's just it's a bit crazy, isn't it? The way it's going to go. Yeah, it's um, 
your, when I was a CIO 10 years ago, my attack surface and my priorities of defense were protect my on-prem environment, protect my perimeter and defend against insider threat. Like those are the three priorities in our attack surface um, mapping. If I was a CIO again today, it would be those three plus the multiple clouds I've got to manage, my sensitive data scattered across multiple SaaS services, my work from home infrastructure, the IoT devices that are now integrated into my network, both approved and unapproved, insider threat, yes, but also the amount of open source intelligence on the web for every one of my employees that can lead to password cracking, credential stuffing, credential reuse across the board. And so my attack surface has grown exponentially over 10 years, yet our capacity to test and our capacity to defend has mostly been flat. And that's as much a people bottleneck as it is a technology and a process bottleneck. And so how do you, it's just an unsustainable trajectory and we have to find a way to change that supply and demand uh, equation. Yeah, no, for sure, for sure. It's going to be a, it's going to be an interesting five years. I, I'm always very optimistic, and I think we'll get there in the end. But companies like yourself, Snell, is going to do amazing, amazing things, and honestly, very, very excited to watch you kind of unfold over the next few years as well. But I always leave with one question, and I think for me, this is one of the most important questions because a lot of the listeners are either early stage founders or anything along those lines as well, or wanting to strive to be that. So, what are the main pieces of advice you would give to people looking to start their own company? Uh, people looking to start their own company. Um, starting a company is a family commitment. It is going to tax your family. It's going to tax your kids. It's going to tax your relationships. And, and most startups fail. So you start a company because you've got the conviction and the family support to see it through, kind of number one. It is a huge decision to make. It's not something you can just take lightly. Now it's different if, if you're on the younger side of your career and you don't have a family, totally different economics, totally different conversation altogether. Your expense profile looks different and so on. So if you're gonna start a company, either do it very early in a career where you can take those risks, but if you're gonna do it in the middle or middle of your career where you've got commitments and family, do so in a way where you've already built up a little bit of a treasure chest and you've got that family commitment because startups are stressful and you don't want to add personal financial stress or personal relationship stress to it. Otherwise, you will struggle and you will fail. It's just very high odds that that's going to happen. So I think that's my biggest thing is if you're going to do it, understand what you're getting into and make sure you've got the conviction and the support to get it done. Number two is team. It is all about that early team. Those are the people you're going to be married to for five to 10 years. And you want to make sure you've got an early team that you trust, an early team that can adapt, an early team that will have conflict amongst each other, but that will work it out because that's what happens. And making sure you've found that early team of people and ideally a team of folks where you've already had your stressful experiences prior to the startup. So in the case of Horizon 3, because the early team served in the same unit, they'd already built trust and rapport amongst each other. And so coming into the startups, honestly, startup life was easy for them because if they made a mistake, someone, it's not like someone was going to die at the end if someone made a mistake. Whereas in special operations, if they made a mistake, it could have cost lives. 
And so they've already built that trust and rapport. So first thing is your personal commitment. The second thing is finding the right team early. And then the third part is finding the right investor. Now, if you can bootstrap the company, then great. That comes with its own pluses and minuses. But finding the right investor that understands the stage that you're at has seen this movie play over and over again. So they've got wisdom to share with you. And they are a partner to you, not a boss to you. That becomes really important. So we, when we selected SignalFire as our lead investor at the seed, uh, one, we went from first pitch to term sheet in two weeks because SignalFire already had a lot of research and conviction in this space to invest. Uh, the team at SignalFire had all done it before. They had a vast amount of resources and talent and networks that we could tap into. And so that investor stress, uh, not having to deal with investor stress was a huge uh, luxury for us as well. And so those are the three things. Know what you're getting into, make sure your family supports you. Focus on finding the right team early, the idea doesn't matter. And then make sure that you are very demanding of finding the right investor that's going to jive with you and your team. Yeah, no, no, it's so important. So important. And you hear, you hear that a lot, don't you, about picking the right investors and things like that. But it's so important at that early stage, but even the family part of it as well, because you, you everybody has to be bought into the journey that you're about to go on. So, no, it's um, that's fantastic. And honestly, so, so excited for the rest of the time with Horizon Free. So just before leaving uh, the podcast today, where are you going to take it? Um, the What's amazing, right, is, as I said, we stumbled our way into 5X growth. We have, we have an amazing market opportunity in front of us. If you think about it, every CrowdStrike customer has a pen testing requirement. If you just take EDR, there's a half a million EDR customers or more out there right? Or no, maybe more. And if every one of them has a $50,000 pen testing budget, you're talking many billions of dollars of revenue opportunity just within the EDR um, co-selling or attached space, attach rate space. So I think any company that transacts with credit cards, any company that has sensitive customer information or sensitive data, any company that operates in some sort of regulated industry or is part of a regulated supply chain, every one of them has a mandated pen testing requirement, which means they've got predefined budget, which is budget that we can take. And so I think that the opportunity in front of us is huge, not only as a pen testing tool, but see the idea is that the hard part of a, of a company is evolving from tool to platform. And that's really the, the, the product evolution that we're in now is evolving from a specific tool that does pen testing towards a platform that does security risk management. And how we journey towards that platform is gonna really set the tone for how big this company can be. Yeah, no, it's awesome. And it's, uh, it's an amazing journey. And I think even you, you talked about it there, I bet that was a decision at the beginning because when companies start and they don't really, they're kind of at their early adoption within a market and companies don't really have the budget to spend on certain things, it's a lot harder. But great opportunity ahead of you as well. So no, very, very excited to, to sit here and watch from the sidelines about your growth for the next few years and congratulations on all the success so far. Awesome. Thanks. I really appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. And uh, yeah, maybe we can do a uh, podcast in a couple of years and see how things go. <laughs> yeah. And uh, we'll hang out at RSA as well. Definitely. Definitely. We'll see you soon and uh, appreciate your time. All right. Thank you.